Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck brothers and sisters? How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. I'm not winded. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm a little winded. Serge Tankian is on the show today. He is the lead singer of System of a Down. He also works with Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, as well as on his own solo stuff. He's an outspoken activist on human rights issues. And there's a new documentary about him called Truth to Power. Now, I came, like, as many of you know me, which many of you do, I'm not a metal guy. I appreciate the metal, some of it. The metal. I be, Look, I like all kinds of music, but I hypnotized and mesmerized. Were those the two records? I remember listening to, I don't remember which one came out first, but I listened to the shit out of it. I don't remember who turned me on to it or what year that was. It seems like a while back. But I was definitely aware of System of a Down. I knew they were intense. I knew they meant fucking business. And I also knew as time went on that they were Armenian. I knew about Surge a bit. But when I got the opportunity to watch this documentary, I was like, holy shit, this guy's got big balls, man. He walks to walk this guy uh, on an activist level. I also realized, and as many of us do, about things, about stuff, about places other than our own place, I don't know much about it. I don't know anything about Armenia, really. And I live amongst the Armenians now. And uh, I was curious. I mean, I could have read a book. I, yeah, I looked at a wiki page. But, you, you know, somebody like Serge, who has been doing activism around uh, a, before, uh, a while back, changing the political system of Armenia uh, to uh, a more democratic situation, Uh, And then uh, to get the recognition, to elevate the recognition of the Armenian genocide globally, especially in the United States. But Serge had a profound impact on on the politics of modern day Armenia. And he's a metal dude, but he means business. Also, there's a solo work, but I, I wanted to be schooled. I wanted to learn. I wanted to know about the Armenian experience in America and in Armenia and what's happening. And I, I, and I, that's, I asked Serge and he, he schooled me and I appreciate it. In other news, I'm going to get a vaccine. I'm going to use my vulnerability to death, my vulnerability to death to, uh, to get a vaccine. Got a little bit of heart disease going on. 
why not use those things for a positive? Hey, man, look, I got a lot of things slowly killing me. I'd rather not go out with the COVID. Can you hit me? Hit me. Hit me with that Pfizer. Hit me with that Moderna. Give me that J&J. Hit me. Hit me. Hit me with your rhythm stick. Hit me. Hit me. What is that? Where did that come from? I'm set up. I'm gonna. Ha- it's gonna happen. I'm gonna get the vaccine. Everyone should get the vaccine. I don't understand vax resistance. I do. I just don't get it. You know, there used to be polio and measles and stuff, right? Y'all know that, right? Look, I I understand in a in a gut way, like you don't want to need the vaccine, but you know, sometimes you got to take a hit for the herd. That was back when democracy was popular. Now there's a growing um, contingent in this country of outright authoritarians and psycho libertarians bordering on fascists and uh, strange militia groups that, uh, you know, in order for somebody to be empathetic to the idea of the herd in a broad way, in a democratic way, you have to believe in it. Get your shot if you can. Get it however you can. So I got the new kitten. I got the new kitten coming. New kitten come moving in tomorrow. Sammy. Sammy the kitten. I got a, I got one of the, his first IG appearances. Not moving, just a still shot. Me and Sammy on the couch. Being our own things. Being our own beings. Being our own individuals. Sammy's now five weeks and change old. About you know, between five and six weeks old. We've been uh, bringing him over here. Kind of like letting Buster look at him. Letting them each see each other. But Sammy at this stage, doesn't seem to give a fuck about Buster. Sammy's just trying to figure out how to get a sense of depth depth perception, how to jump off a chair, uh, how to eat solid food, how to you know, trot around, how to respond to things that are moving. Uh, yeah. So, like, of course, Buster hisses, and Sammy doesn't even acknowledge it. But I remember when Buster was a strange little kitten and he lived around my old cats for years. Most of Buster's life he spent as the kitten among the old cats. And now he's the older cat with the kitten. But uh, certainly Sammy doesn't give he doesn't seem to even notice Buster. Buster seems irritated, but not hostile. I think it's going to work out. And I was petting um, Sammy, little Sammy, little red Sammy, Sammy Red on my chest and he began to uh shit so that i think that brought us together he 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 began to to shit on my shirt and we got him off of me but i i see that as a bonding moment i don't know if sammy will remember it but not unlike monkey used to do when he shit on the rug he was looking directly at me nothing better than a cat looking at you as he shits on your stuff even on your on your being cats don't you love cats do they like you? Probably not. Do you think they do? Sometimes. Do you love them? Yes. So Sammy the cat, Sammy the kitten, will be here uh, tomorrow if all works well. He seems healthy. He's got a couple of his uh, shots already. Got to get the rest of the shots, get him checked out. Make sure he's not a, a faulty tyke. But now, you know, I'm already attached. And now, like, if he's fucked up, I'm going to have to ride that out. I just, you know, it's, it's t- 
tough with the pets. It's been a rough year for me with pets and people passing. Certainly didn't expect one. But with the pets, you kind of know it. So now, like, there's part of me, it's like, oh, kitten, uh, great. Now I get to watch him die if I'm lucky. If I live that long. Is that a bad way to look at it? It feels like it. Isn't it? It is, right? I, I really, on a day-to-day basis, don't know whether we actually do survive as a democracy or as a country. And when things happen, like what happened in Atlanta the day before yesterday, uh, a racist massacre by a radicalized, mentally ill person um, who probably sees himself as a martyr and will be seen as somebody uh, who inspires racial violence and the fact that that is escalating is uh, not going in the right direction. But hopefully in the next few years, we can really get a clear assessment of uh, how much of that momentum is happening. God knows the last four years, we all know which members of our family are part of it. And uh, how big the voting block is for anti-democratic thinking and shameless fascism. But this violence, the terrorist arm of the radicalization of mentally ill people and people filled with hate is uh, definitely happening. And it was interesting for me to talk to Serge who... You know, I'm, I I don't know how active any of you are, how active we all are. You know, we I guess most of us want to do our part. And, you know, some people would consider me not as progressive as I should be or not as uh, active as I should be or not doing enough. But I do what I can. I try to give voice to things. But, you know, when you're an American and you, you look at yourself in, in relation to that and what you can do and what you're willing to do and with your life, there's big questions. And also, you know, what information are you reacting to? But Serge had a very specific action and a, and a hereditary action and, a, and, a, and a, an action that goes back to where his family comes from. You know, he sought to fight for the recognition of the Armenian genocide by the world, by the United States government. He also fought to uh, protect his homeland from an ongoing kind of oligarchical, corrupt governmental structure and uh, inspired a a new generation of uh, political radicalization through nonviolent means mostly uh, in Armenia. And and he's an American Armenian. It was inspiring. Made me feel like I don't do enough. But it was certainly a trip talking to him. He's in a, uh, there's a new documentary about his, uh, his life called Truth to Power. It's available on demand and in virtual cinemas worldwide. This is me talking to Serge Tank. 
Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, search. Yeah, it sounded like you were just having sex. I was I just like, "Wow, this is exciting." Yeah, this it's a right. good way to start. Good start. Yeah, I'm almost finished. Just, just hang out a minute. Oh, good, good. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to get set I'm up. Glad. Here. I'm glad you finished. Yeah. Why well, do you want to be rude and be doing that in the middle of everything? Why is everything tangled up? Hold on. Oh my God. Jesus Christ. Okay. Nice to meet All you, right. man. Nice to meet you too, brother. Yeah. Oh my God! How you been? I'm okay. Where are you? In which location? Which bunker are you in? Los Angeles, in my studio. Oh, you're in the studio. Do you? Mm-hmm. But you, do you live? Do you live here all the time? Uh, part of the year, part of the year in New Zealand. See, like, what's that? What, when did you do that New Zealand thing? When did you do that? First time I went was in 2000 on the Big Day Out tour. Fell in love with the place and kept on going back. 2006, I got residency got a place there and and have been going back and forth playing ping pong every year so we were there during lockdown uh which was a whole different experience than being here in la um way way different well what what uh what compelled you then was it the same sort of did you know at that time in 2006 because i know you've been on the pulse of the end of the world for a long time were you like uh (laughs) we better we better get to we want to get we want to be in the place where the world ends last (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, uh, there's there's a certain aspect of the uh, political. New Zealand's a great place in many many ways. Yeah. Obviously, um, ecologically, it's not the perfect place, but it's it, everything's you know the water's still clean as far as fishing. The air is clean. Everything's organic, and you know all farming's done locally. You know, it's it. There's there's a there's a whole, wholesomeness to New Zealand in that sense, ecologically, politically. It's it's quite smart and and lenient. Uh, it's a real democracy. Yeah. I'll tell you that. Um, we they don't have K Street lobbying firms. They don't have the electoral college. They don't have super PACs. They don't have PAC money. Um, that helps, you know. And good, you know, they've had good leadership overall um, during the pandemic. The prime minister Jacinda Ardern, she was very communicative. She was very on point. She told people not to panic. You know, when, when we had the toilet paper stuff going on in, in the U.S. and everyone was freaking out, grabbing too much toilet paper. Yeah. She got on television and she said, you know, we have a beautiful little toilet paper plant on the South Island. We're never going to run out. So please don't <laughs> let's not embarrass ourselves as well. You know, that kind of a thing. It was very, very charming, very funny. Don't freak out about the toilet paper thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and people... 
People responded. But there's also something else that I think explains New Zealand's situation besides the non-porous borders. Obviously, it's an island. Everyone's like, it's an island, douchebag. You know, like, that's why, you know, it's not just that. It's also because of personal responsibility. There's still some type of collective responsibility and understanding by people saying that, okay, we have to do what's best for the country. If that means staying home, then so be it. We have to do what's best for the country. So if that means putting on a mask, then so be it. So you mean there's grownups there? There's grownups, there's rational adults there who uh, who aren't brain fucked at, at, uh, <laughs> at so easily. <laughs> So, well put. <laughs> so easily misunderstanding the uh, the idea of liberty and freedom. Exactly. But look, man, I mean, I, I'm glad to talk to you. I, I got to be honest. I like in terms of system, like I jumped on, I would say like the two big records were mesmerized and hypnotized. I was like, I listened to the hell out of those records, but I'm not a metal guy. Cool. So I wasn't there at the right. beginning of, of, That's all right. of you. We'll take you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> But I am curious, you know, and I watch the doc as well, but I'm curious, like, I, I think that you are not just, a, you know, a, I think you seem to be a real, a bona fide ambassador to Armenia in, in some respects. It's not, you're not just a by proxy or by, you know, the, the, the prime minister invited you there at the turn of the revolution. So I think that that means you are an actual ambassador to Armenia. A cultural one. Yeah. A cultural ambassador. Yes. I, I, I live yeah. amongst your people. And I'm mad and upset at myself <laughs> that I don't know more. Oh, okay. And I, you know, and it's one of those things as an American, uh, an entitled American, I guess, and also as a Jew, I on some level that my histories are fairly specific. And and it seems that you know lately in the last few months there's been you know quite a crisis in Armenia that, again, I'm not educated about and even reading about it, I'm not entirely clear on, but I do know because of the neighborhood I'm in that there's some trouble. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, last year, and, and a lot of people don't know this, so it's important to discuss, last year in uh, September, on September 27, the combined forces of Azerbaijan, Turkey, along with Syrian mercenaries that Turkey brought in to Azerbaijan, attacked uh, Artsakh. Artsakh is a an enclave that was historically Armenian for 2,500 years. Yeah. It was under Russian pr uh, protection in the 1800s, early 1900s. It was given by Stalin in 1920 to Azerbaijan during the Soviet Union. But the people lived as a uh, an autonomous oblast, which means they r ran their own affairs. They had their own government. They lived there freely. There were Azeris living there as well and in surrounding areas. Azeris? Azeris, like from Azerbaijan, yeah, yeah. Azerbaijanis, yeah. So in the 90s, when the uh, Soviet, Soviet Union collapsed, um, all these countries proclaimed independence. Azerbaijan, Armenia, Ukraine, like all these former Soviet republics proclaimed independence. At that time, these Armenians living there also proclaimed independence. Now, 95% uh, of the population there in that area was Armenian. So the resolution passed for independence. Because Azerbaijan uh, controlled the territory, they reacted angrily and came down with oppressive measures against Armenians. So there were these pogroms and killings and all this stuff, which led to an independence movement. In 1994, the Armenian Defense Forces took over Artsakh along with security buffers in that area. So they've been running their own affairs for 27 years. And then, lo and behold, during the pandemic, Azerbaijan, with the help of Turkey, a major NATO army, attacked that enclave with just, you know, everything they had. 
A lot of people died. A lot of people were displaced. About 140,000 people oh were displaced God. from Artsakh. Yeah. This is a couple months ago. This is a couple of months ago. Uh, it started in September. In early November, a ceasefire was signed and Russian peacekeeping troops uh, entered the area and they've been trying to keep the peace since. The ceasefire was basically predicated upon the Armenian leadership, the Armenian prime minister. This is your this is your guy, your buddy? This is, this is yeah, this is Nigol Pashinyan who led the revolution yeah. and, yeah, a friend. These guys were a small defense force fighting, you know, uh, a bigger nation and then backed up by even a bigger nation and 2,000 Syrian jihadist mercenaries. Uh, there was no chance. Oh, my God. So this is, this, is, uh, this is a Turkish incentive again. Yeah. The Turks gave, Erdogan gave uh, uh, whatever support that the president, uh, the dictatorial president of Azerbaijan wanted. And so they, they had the backbone to actually do it. And they did it during a pandemic. They committed war crimes. There were banned phosphorus, white phosphorus weapons uh, dropped over people, over uh, nature, you know, they were bombarding civilian territories the whole time, daily, oh. day in and day out. It was it was horrific. So as Armenian Americans, we all galvanized uh, in trying to raise funds for humanitarian support, in trying to get media support, because, you know, when Azerbaijan attacked, they didn't just attack with military weapons. They attacked with propaganda, disinformation, social media bots, yeah. as you would these days, apparently, right. you know, there was a false uh, kind of equality narrative in the press saying that, oh, no, Armenia attacked us. And they were like, no, I mean, you came to us and attacked like we were just there. And also here, you know, who nobody really knows. So, you know, it's a passing well, we story. We're going through elections. Yeah. We're going through elections, to be fair, and the pandemic. And so, look, they picked a time that they knew that the world was going to be distracted. So where is it at now? It's it's pretty horrible because uh, Azerbaijan still holding uh, POWs, Armenian POWs, even though Armenia's released all Azeri POWs. Um, they're using it as a tool of uh, divisiveness and kind of creating chaos within the, the governing system of Armenia. So, you know, there's protests in Armenia. There's a lot of divisiveness, a lot of anger, a lot of grief. It's a shame because... The 2018 Peaceful Velvet Revolution was a unique thing that, again, most Americans don't really know, that really was in incredibly special because not only not a single person died and a an oligarchic corrupt system was replaced by a progressive democracy, but also it was the first time de that decentralized civil disobedience was used as a tool of revolution. Yeah, let's talk, let's let's get let's come back around to that because you were sort of uh, uh, an intricate part about both in inspiration and, and action. So when it seems to me that you're like, when you were younger you, and you're still pretty intense, but you're not as intense as I thought you would be Im immediately. For some reason, when I, I met you, I thought like, oh my God, it's going to be intense. It's going to be earnest and it's going to be, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's going to be, this is going to be like, I'm just going to have to stay on my toes here. I was thinking the same about you. Oh, come on. So <laughs> come on, you, you what? interviewed Obama. Give me a break. Like I, I have to be on my point. Oh yeah. But he, you know, he was very casual, you know, but, um, your parents are both Armenian, from Armenia. Uh, not from Armenia. My dad was born in Syria. My mom from, from Lebanon. Uh, my grandparents were survivors of the genocide. So they split, they left, and they they, they ended yeah. up in these different places. Yeah. That was 1915, is it? Correct, yeah. Where were you born? I was born in Lebanon. I was born in Beirut. Uh, seven years old, we migrated to L.A. when the Lebanese uh, Lebanese Civil War started. Grew up in Los Angeles. Where'd you live when you came? In Wilshire area? That Where was the original Glen, the Armenian enclave? Hollywood. 
Hollywood. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Little Little Armenia, which is Hollywood, um, main Hollywood area. So that's where we first lived, then in the valley, mostly back and forth in different places in the valley. Never Glendale? I never lived in Glendale, no. A couple of my band members lived there, but <laughs> not myself. Someone must have lived in Glendale. Some relative. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Someone <laughs> must have lived there, and then they all they were like, hey, come to Glendale. That became the thing, yeah. I, well, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me not unlike the, the, the Jews who came over at different points in time. You know, you start off in one place altogether, and then as you gain status or, or economic status, you know, you, you move to the suburbs to a degree. And I, I would have that's to right. think that's what Glendale was, an aspiration. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. It started out in Little Hollywood, uh, Little Armenia in Hollywood, and then moved out to Glendale. It became a more, you know, suburb kind of living and community. And there's still a lot of Armenians in the valley as well, in North Hollywood and all over. Yeah, yeah, but they, they all, it seems like many came to Los Angeles area. Do you know why that is? Um, you know, originally the Armenian community was actually settled in uh, Fresno because of agriculture and also on the East Coast in Boston. We had a lot, a lot of Armenians in Watertown. But later, the migrations after the 80s, you know, um, and when Armenia first be- became independent in 1991 from the Soviet Union, a lot of people came to Los Angeles area, yeah. And when you got here, you spoke only Armenian? Uh, when I got here, I spoke uh, mostly Armenian, a little English, and uh, a little Arabic, because I was born in Lebanon. Yeah. And, and then you went, to, uh, you went to an Armenian school? Yep. I went to an Armenian private school from third grade till the end of high school. Then I went to Cal State Northridge, got my degree from Northridge. Now, my question, though, is, like, what were the expectations? Because talking to people that come, that, you know, first generation... Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, wanting to 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 make a, a go for themselves in 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 America. What what were the expectations out of uh, you know from your parents in in terms of what they wanted you to do or what you thought you should do? How did you develop the original chip on your shoulder, Serge? Oh, that's what you mean. Okay, <laughs> um, I'll I'll get to that. As far as my parents, I mean, they were in survival mode when they came. You know, they didn't come with much money at all, and they were just trying to make a living and yeah. trying to get by. They made sure that we got a good education, which was very important to them, um, and that we re- that we respected and retained our heritage as well, cultural heritage. So that was important to them. As far as the chip on my shoulder, as you call it, um, I became an activist because of the kind of weird taboo position of the Armenian genocide within a well-known democracy like the U.S. But when did you become like aware of that? Because like it seems to yeah. me that you you started with your education, but, you know, you were going a different direction. Oh, yeah, yeah. You didn't start with music. No, I didn't. I didn't start with music. Uh, I was. I started playing music while I was in university. Just got a little keyboard and played yeah, yeah, around yeah. as a way of relaxing. And uh, then I started getting, you know, joined a band, but still not very seriously. Graduated university with a bachelor's in marketing. Started working in the jewelry industry with my dad. I had worked, sorry, with my uncle. Uh, I had worked with my dad in the shoe industry. I... I created a software company and ran a software company for years. I did many interesting things. Um, I even ran a car wash while I was in uh, university. Um, but uh, at one point, I realized that music is my calling. It was a huge awakening, an epiphany, if you will. How did that happen? Well, I was I was working in downtown with my uncle in the jewelry industry, and, and at nights I was taking these Kaplan classes in Long Beach so I can learn how to take the LSAT to, be, to, be, to get into law school. Are you going to be thought, a lawyer? Look, I know about... Yeah, <laughs> you could see me as a lawyer, right? Yeah, um, I could. But, but, you know, I'm a left brain, right brain person as you are. Like, you know, you can do your logical stuff and, yeah. and be creative at the same time. 
So, uh, so I thought, yeah, okay, I could do law school. I was dealing with a lot of attorneys at the time for, for my parents' affairs and stuff like that. And I hated it. I just going to these Kaplan classes and seeing all these people that were enthused about doing law. I just fucking, it, I, I always say that I had to go to the outer ends of who I shouldn't be to admit to myself who I really am. And that's when I had an epiphany that music was my calling. But that's like, but it, it just feels to me that the pressure, you know, on, you know, sort of first generation people to to succeed in a way that is acceptable in the community, that is acceptable to your parents, that that makes sense on paper to to right. to to them and and to you. It seems that that a lot of people, you know, do what they think they have to do, and they just suck it up. And it, it's yeah, it's it's it, it seems to me that. You know that to to make that decision to follow this calling, and like you know, you talk in the documentary a lot about this this Armenian song, the Stork song. Mm-hmm. You know that 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 kind of hangs over the whole thing, which I think is sort of beautiful. But but so you didn't really know you weren't playing, you know, in a band. I mean, you didn't have any indication that music would. Uh, that go anywhere. No, I didn't. I just knew that that was my calling. So I dedicated myself wholeheartedly to it and just, just, you know, learned and, 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 and played and I enjoyed it. But I was who like, were you, who were your guys? I mean, like, what were you listening to? I mean, to end up where you did. Cause I mean, it turns out that like, you know, system of a down, you're just by nature of the form. I mean, metal's one thing and, you know, and how it borders on, on punk is another thing, but, but there's something lyrically, uh, exotic because of the Armenian melodies that are intrinsic to all you guys. Mm-hmm. Bravo. Well put. Well put. Yeah. <laughs> there is there is there is that, you know, flavor that we have that, you know, whether we're going through a song that you know is a mishmash of punk and whatever it is, yeah. um we've we've got our own kind of folky kind of addition to that from from our heritage that that is definitely a, a trademark it's kind of wild because i think it, it seems like it's just in there it doesn't see it seems like there's an it's effortless because like yeah. you know we'll get back to the influences but i mean there's a weird beat a different beat like a lot of the metal guys you know try to get away from blues based anything so you know you get it you get into this this other type of drive but there is a, yeah. a there's a different rhythm to uh to the music of the region that you come from genetically. That's right. I don't, yeah, and That's I don't right. know what that rhythm is, but I hear it. I used to hear it in Queens too. It's in Greece as well, I That's think. Right. Like there, it is. Yeah, yeah. And and Mediterranean. And, um, yeah, mm-hmm. right, right. And it it there, it's it's a rolling rhythm that's a completely different than for what you know four four or anything that other metal bands were doing. And that must be was that the rhythm you grew up with? Uh, you know, I. We, we all grew up with different types of music besides, you know, rock and, and modern music at the time, you know. So, yeah, I mean, gr- I grew up with Armenian beats and melodies, Arabic beats and melodies and European beats and melodies. Yeah. I mean, I was exposed to a lot of stuff uh, before we even, you know, as a, as a kid, before we even moved to L.A. And then in L.A. in the 70s, it was, you know, Bee Gees and, and you know, disco and, and so many things. And 80s was a different type of music. I kind of became a music connoisseur. As to what I was listening to, my brother was a huge music fan, and I wasn't a, at the time. I wasn't a heavy metal music listener, Older not brother? a big fan of rock. 
my uh, younger brother actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but he loved like heavy music, so he'd played at home, and and that's how I kind of caught on to heavy music. But you know, I was just into any other types of music. You know, it's like it's an interesting thing when you look at a person and their whole life of music listening. That tapestry of what they listen to in each decade is quite interesting, based on the kind of characteristics of the music of that decade. So I remember at one point, Mark, I was I was. For three months, I would binge and purge on a specific type of music. Three months of hip hop. Three months only death metal, the best of it. Because like you naturally did it, or you forced yourself to do it. I didn't force myself to do it. It just it was it was almost like I'd get into one band that I really liked, and then I'd go. I've never really I've never experienced this genre before. Yeah. It's like I've never eaten Indian food before. Yeah. What are the best Indian restaurants yeah, yeah, in LA? Yeah. You know that yeah. that kind of a thing with music. When do you remember first doing that? Like, what got you into rap? What got you into metal? Twenties, uh, thirties. My 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 brother was into metal, so he got me into it first. And then my guitarist Darren was really into heavy music, so he also turned me on to a lot of music. Like, which bands are your bands? <laughs> God, I mean, you know, we we're listening to anything from the band Death, for yeah. example. Uh, to uh, you know Slayer, who yeah. we toured with on our yeah. first thing. To you know, I mean, heavy, heavy music, uh, a lot of death metal music, but also rock music. You know, I mean, I didn't grow up listening to Black Sabbath, for example, or or whatever. It was in my twenties that I discovered Black Sabbath, not in my teens or right. whatever. You know, just late in life. So I had an early music experience of of another kind of mostly world music, what you would call world music, and and you know whatnot. Um, world music, huh? Whatever that means, right? But but it's a specific type of music. I guess it's more folky type of ethnic music would be world music. Um, when you started playing, you only you were primarily a singer. No, when I when I I was a horrible singer when we first started. Uh, I primarily played keys and I wrote poetry. So I was a word man and you know uh, keyboard man. Um, and then I started playing some guitar. My first band that I sang in was a precursor to System of a Down called Soil with uh, my guitarist Darren and we had other band members at yeah. the time uh, not not the current lineup of System and it was just like this really progressive crazy metal band that served as like the the uh, kind of pot in which System of a Down became you know cooked in yeah um, it was the original flavors and System is more kind of refined version of that but that's when I got my first kind of I had my first show as a singer and I had my first experience uh, rehearsing as a singer and, and starting to develop my voice, yeah. which, you know, takes takes a lifetime sometimes. And and your parents, how did they respond initially? Well, my dad, funny enough, was a musician. He wasn't a professional musician and he always wanted to do music as his career. But, you know, his his dad, my grandfather, passed away when he was in second grade. And so he... He couldn't afford to take the risk, so he got into the shoe business and spent his whole life providing for the family, being a responsible person. Did he always play, and though? So he always played. Yeah, he still plays. Yeah, yeah. And years ago, we put out his record. I produced his record under his name, which was cool. Armenian music and well-arranged kind of stuff, and he was happy. How'd that go over in Armenia? Did it did it sell? Yes. So the song Bari Arakil that you're referring to, the Crane song, oh, the Crane, yeah, is the one that I do with him. Yeah, and that's how I first published that song is because I sang it on his record with him, and that's a song that he used to sing when I was young, and I used to hear him and kind of sing along when I was a young kid, and so it does bring back a lot of memories. It seems like that was sort of the 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 kind of um, launching point for your poetic mind. I mean, what is that song about? It represents something, right? 
It's about missing home. It's a, it's about being a diasporan. It's about having a home that's somewhere else, mm, you know, mm. um, that that you always long for, but you're kind of estranged from, mm. and that you always want to return home some way. Mm. And I don't know if you could or can't, you know. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful song in that way. It's interesting because, like, I I, I mean, it's different for me. I'm a few generations down, you know, from my uh, Polish or Ukrainian or Russian roots. Yeah, I don't know right. that. You know, if I went back as a you know as a Jew to to uh, to Russia to Belarus, then I'm going to walk right. around and go like you know this feels like home to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. Well, it's the same feeling I would have probably going to uh, Eastern Turkey, mm. which is where my family's from. You know, we're we're from Central to Eastern Turkey, which was historical Armenia. So where my family was from wasn't where Armenia is now. Where my family from is, is Turkey. Yeah. So I've never been back. Um, and I don't think, I don't know what kind of feelings I would have going to my un- my grandfather's village uh, that he was, uh, you know, deported from and put on a pogrom through the desert. I don't know what kind of feelings I would have going, going, oh, this place is cool. Like, I, I get it. I get what you feel. So are there no Armenians in Turkey? Uh, there are some, but not, you know, I mean, there were millions of Armenians because they were our historical homelands. There's probably, I'm guessing, 30,000, 40,000 in Istanbul, probably huh. uh, based around Istanbul. Yeah. And your awakening, you realized how dis- how, how the global politics worked in, in relation to admitting or, or acknowledging the Armenian genocide or calling it a genocide that there was global politics involved with defining that that was uh, being guided by Turkey's uh, uh, denial of it. Correct. And when did that happen for you? When did you be like, well, this is this is fucked up? I and mean, when did the the roots or your ex- the experience of your grandparents start to affect you personally? I was in my teens, somewhere in my teens. I don't remember the exact age, but somewhere in my teens, you know, when when I saw that. Congress hadn't recognized the genocide and, and, and they were playing with this G word. And, we, you know, we knew that Turkey was spending millions of dollars on, um, you know, uh, lobbying firms, K Street lobbying firms, trying to not get the Armenian genocide recognized in the United States Congress. And I'm like, how could this be in a democracy? Like, how could this be? How could this be happening? And that made me really, you know, look into what are the reasons? What's the history behind this denial? What's, you know, why is this happening? And that made me an activist on many grounds because I thought, shit, if this thing's not recognized for political expediency or economic purposes, because the U.S. wants to sell Apache helicopters to their NATO ally, Turkey, then how many other truths out there that are being denied because someone's profiting from it or they, or because of foreign policy or whatever, whatever fucked up, you know, yeah. uh, thing there is that that made me an activist. Yeah. And it, I, it, it seems like ultimately it informed almost all of the system records, you know, either specifically or in a broader way. You were pushing back against something against, you know, the yeah. sort of like brain, the brain fucking and the mind numbing and the hypocrisy and the, yeah. you know, the the murder, the bombing, the gen- like there was not not too lighthearted, really, and not too thinly yeah. veiled. And and, not too thinly, yeah. and I yeah. think that what I see or what I, I can pick up is that, you know, there is a general sense of anger in, in a lot of metal music. But yours was rooted in something historical, and it was something historical that also spoke to current conditions everywhere in terms of 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 power and politics. Right. Absolutely. No. I mean, 
our music became my music became somewhat not all of it because you know we're not like like rage against the machine that's all political because we also have funny songs yeah. and songs about love and many things but definitely a part of my music has always been socio-political you know because there's a certain the 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 activist in me wants his say through my music wants to say through the artist in me right and also but you know the the balance is funny songs love songs i mean that that i mean there has to be some aspiration you know you could do the politics we got to fix yeah. everything because look yeah. we can laugh and we can celebrate life yeah, yeah. And, and dance totally totally so but speaking of rage i mean you and tom morella were I mean, you somehow found yourself together or you decided to work together on something. That seemed to make perfect sense. Definitely. So Tom and I have been friends for a long time. And when we first met, um, it was uh, there was an action that he wanted to do in Santa Monica where they had come up with the local businesses had come yeah. up with a law that you can't feed the homeless. And so we kind of got together on that topic and decided to break the law and invite media to focus on the topic that the city was trying to outlaw feeding homeless people as a way of getting rid of them. And so that's when we started our nonprofit organization called Access of Justice that we had for a number of years. We had a radio show on KPFK, Pacifica Radio Network for years together and really enjoyed working with each other. We still do. Um, he does his own activism. I do my own. But I'm very inspired by the amount of dedication he has and hard work that he puts into everything that he does. It's incredible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No. And 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 he's he's always. It seems like he's always been doing that. That like yeah. Even with yeah. even with the yeah. rage, it was like from the beginning. It seemed that's what it was about. Always true to himself. Yeah. So, I, I know I didn't know about the situation in Armenia before the the most the new prime minister, uh, you know, took took over, but uh, but it was pretty straight up uh, dictatorship, right? No, it wasn't a dictatorship, Mark. It was. Um, it was actually, we had free press from the beginning since 1991. It wasn't a dictatorship, but it was more of like, um, more of like <laughs> gangs of New York in a way, like where a bunch of buddies were oligarchs. They ha held the monopolies. They controlled the system. From back in the Russian days? Uh, no, not, not from back in the Russian days, but most of those Soviet republics were similar in that sense that you would, I mean, sometimes they'd have a dictator that stayed in place like Lukashenko's still been there from the Russian days. It wasn't like that with them, but they held on. I mean, how do I explain this? It was oligarchical. Yeah. I mean, they were they were like a group of people. They all had money. They all siphoned money away from public policy. And uh, you couldn't get a fair shake in the courts because if someone knew someone, then they would have the, you know, they would have the up, upper hand. Uh, you could pay off cops, that kind of thing. It was basic corruption. It was basic. You know, it it, it wasn't legalized corruption like the U.S. It was Overt so, but it wasn't Erdogan. It wasn't. It wasn't Turkey. No, it wasn't Erdogan. We've always had a free press. Armenians are way too opinionated to be able to withstand any type of dictator. But we were living under, you know, an, an unjust, corrupt system, and people were leaving because they were looking for work elsewhere. They, they didn't get a fair shake in the country. And, and wait, wait, when did that happen? Because it, you know, I know that you took some flack, you know, in the aftermath of nine eleven. Because of the timing of what was it the third album release second toxicity, toxicity. yeah and that uh, mm -hmm. you know you were you were a political activist then and, and your reaction which wasn't incorrect was just the timing of it uh, of course got you the attention that it did which was uh, who the fuck right. is this guy is he one of them yeah right <laughs> yeah 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 exactly exactly 
Um, so yeah, and, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of funny you're mentioning this because we just got, you know, Metal Hammer just, just said that Toxicity was the best record of, best metal record of the 20th century or whatever, best rock record, which is, which is huge. But all I can think about is the stress and anguish around that record. Um, because when we released uh, the single Chop Suey from Toxicity, you know, the wake up, grab brush and put a little bit, that, that song, right? Um, it was crazy. I mean, w the release was on the week of 9-11. They took our song off the air along with a bunch of other songs, Rage Against the Machine songs, you know, all, all sorts of music. Um, and Clear Channel had censored like the whole playlist of, of music, which is really weird looking back at it now, if you think about it. Um, and I had written a piece called Understanding Oil that I posted to the band's website a day after 9-11, trying to, trying to understand what was going on, trying to kind of basically saying that, look, we've, as a, as a country, we've propped up dictators in the Middle East in the last 50 years, you know, we've, you know, look, look who we're, we're supporting, how we're doing it, and, and really asking for multilateralism in terms of going after who's responsible, not, you know, not being unilateral like George W. Bush we knew was going to be, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, uh, it's kind of funny because now they're using it for, you know, a college essay a little yeah. learning, like, you know, which is like 20 years later, you know. But at the time, it was like it, it really put us on the edge and the label asked us to take it off the website the band called me in they're like you're a smart guy are you trying to get us killed what the fuck right. are you doing you know and i'm like but it's the truth you know you must have been a little scared though no i was very scared sure yeah I mean, we were getting threats i tell you man i mean you got you, you definitely got big balls in terms of how you handled that but i have to assume that you know you must have been out of your mind i i i don't i <laughs> i'm just i'm i'm dedicated to the truth in a very naive way and that's all I have to say. Um, so for me, it was just like, it's the truth. And I've learned since, Mark, that there are many times, it's not the only time in history where you can speak truth and public opinion hasn't caught up to that until yeah, later. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. And you get, you get flack for that. And then later in revisionist history or whatever you want to call it, you're like, oh, yeah, that made sense. That, that totally makes sense, right? Right. And, yeah, and if you're lucky, you're alive and you haven't been ruined. Right. Right. You, you, can, you can appreciate... Your, your vindication. Exactly. Well, it, it's never vindication because what happened were, you know, the invasion of Iraq, which literally had nothing to do sure. with 9-11. And yet they tried to make that link. WMDs, all that stuff, which we now know was non-existent. So you never really feel good unless something good happens from it. Yeah, but, but you know, awareness is not nothing. And all of this is building your sort of, you know, personal, right. political and, and philosophical and activist capital for, you know, what you want to accomplish, right? Right. So when it comes down to, you know, stepping up in, in, with with your home country, with Armenia, like, was System of a Down popular in Armenia immediately? On the first album? No, not at all. Nobody knew who we were. Um, and I think it was after this... I'm guessing if it was after the second record, but it was also our our band's activism having to do with awareness of the genocide that really kind of touched upon the Armenian kind of heart. And, you know, I, you know, if I go to Glendale now, an old lady will come up and hug me, not because she listens to System of a Down, but because she knows that my band and I have been working toward the recognition of the genocide for years, right? She doesn't, uh, she doesn't love that second album? She doesn't... <laughs> she doesn't love that second album. She's not into. She's not into metal. She's like you know. It's like yeah, ah! right. Um, 
So there's there's definitely that aspect of it. Um, but but it seemed like by the time you guys go there the first time, I mean, you know, it would seem to me that Armenians would see your names and be like, look, Armenians. Yeah. That they yeah. would, uh, but because it, it, it looks like by the time you got there, you know, there were thousands of people that identified with yeah. uh, with you and True. the band and and the message. True. Yeah, so that was, you know, about 20 years after we formed the band and, and you know, we'd been asked to go and that was the perfect time for the band to go and it was it was an incredible, incredible uh, feeling. That was before the revolution. It was three years before the revolution, yeah. So it was 2015, the, uh, set, the 100th anniversary of the Armenian Genocide uh, and the government invited... Uh, the band to come and play a free show in Republic Square. Did he know what he was getting into? They did. They did. Because I, you know, in 2013, I had written an open letter to the president at the time, Serge Sarkisian, uh, in kind of basically calling him out on vote rigging and, you know, uh, you know, basically taking the elections uh, in an undemocratic way. And we had letters exchanged back and forth within the press openly. Um, so I, I challenged them, and but they knew that when it came to the genocide and my dedication to my grandfather's history and, and the importance of the recognition that basically I would, you know, we, we would play the show and that we would represent our nation having to do with the recognition of the genocide. And, and the 100th anniversary was huge because Germany recognized the genocide, the Vatican recognized the genocide officially, you know, many other countries came into the recognition uh, sphere. But I also had to kind of speak truth to power from stage, the truth serum, as we call it. And, and you know, so when it was time, I, I actually started, you know, started thinking of my grandparents, both of my grandparents. I, I felt like they were there in spirit mm. with me. And I started just talking and basically, you know, talking about the fact that Obama had uh, as a candidate, uh, you know, blamed George Bush for not recognizing the Armenian genocide. But when he became president because of the NATO links of Turkey and stuff like that, he didn't recognize the genocide properly and talked about the Armenian government at the same time and said, listen, you know, uh, you got we got to change this. This is so, this is not right. There's injustice. Right. Here. So this is 2015. So this is long after. I mean, this is years after mesmerize and hypnotize. So like I, I, I mean, so by this point, all Armenians knew your band. Exactly. So, like, tell me that story, though, because, like, I thought that, you know, there was something kind of uh, amazing about your uh, turning away Atlantic Records. What year was that? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that is an interesting story. I'm trying to remember I mean, the you'd year. Ha- but you'd, you'd already had a record out, right? You were two? Um, yeah, no, I we had our records out. You know, I, I, had, I, had, I had a small imprint, uh, a label. And I had signed this band from from Texas called Fair to Midland, really great progressive rock band. So, but it was about your imprint. It wasn't about the the system's records. It wasn't about System of a Down. No, yeah, it was about another band. And they, um, so we we signed them to to our imprint because we found them really interesting. And then we tried to get a distribution deal for them with a major label, which you would do at the time. And so there were a number of labels interested, Universal, Atlantic, and uh, a couple of others. So they flew us out to New York to kind of present the band and kind of do their pitches, like take them out to dinner, schmooze, do their pitches, right? So each company did their pitch. Atlantic, you know, had a great pitch, and, and we had a great meeting with them. And Craig Kalman, who's a friend, he's the, you know, he runs the label, still runs the label as far as I know. And by the end of our meeting, he said, hey, you want to come in and say hi to the old man? And I'm like, old man? 
Oh, Ahmed Erdogan. Yeah, the 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 guy that signed, you know, Zeppelin and Ray and, you know, like all these amazing right. bands. Like he was a legend, right? I'm like, sure, I'd love to meet him. Uh, so I went and sit down, 70s office. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, he's cool. the guy, man. He's, I mean, he's, he's like, he did every, yeah, Ray Charles, he did everybody. I know, I know, incredible. Um, so I sat down with him, I'm talking to him, and I'm, I'm like, I'm so appreciative of what you've done, you, you know, amazing, I'm so grateful, thank you for meeting me, etc., whatever. And then somehow it came, I knew it was Turkish, obviously, and, and I said, by the way, I'm Armenian, and I grew up in Los Angeles and stuff, and immediately he goes, oh, the first person we had at our label was Armenian, almost defensively, right. like, oh, I have yeah, a black yeah, friend, yeah, like yeah, that yeah. kind of a, you yeah. know, response. And I just, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to put much into this, whatever. So we kept on talking, whatever. And then 10 minutes, the, you know, met with him and left. And on my way back, they had internet on the plane and I got on and something was yeah. irking me yeah. inside. And I typed his name, Ahmed Erdogan, and then I wrote the word genocide behind it. And my jaw dropped when I saw what, what had, you know, he... Uh, his dad apparently was the um, ambassador of Turkey to the United States way long ago in the 1930s. And his dad was instrumental in holding back a film about the Armenian genocide called The 40 Days of Musadal by Franz Werfel. Franz Werfel is a Jewish-German author who had written a huge book about the Armenian genocide in the 1930s. So he convinced MGM not to put out that movie, right. his dad, right? He himself, Ahmed Erdogan, had paid millions of dollars to uh, U.S. think tanks and also um, university chairs, set up university chairs who had hired uh, authors who denied the Armenian genocide. Wow. So he had. Yeah. So then I had to like I was like in this weird conundrum now. I'm trying to sign this deal to a label. And I'm like, how did this happen with an American band from Texas? Like, how does this happen to me? Kind of, how do I get into these things? Now you're on, you're, you're, you're on the integrity line again. Now on the integrity line again, accidentally, all right? Like, I had no idea. So now I'm like, what do I do? And the story is very interesting. We don't get into it that much in, in the film. But uh, so I, I told my friend, Craig Kalman, who, who ran the label, I, you know, I said, I'm not going to hold this against the label, obviously, because that's not fair. But I'm telling you the pros and cons of your label, the pros and cons of the other label we're looking at. So you're aware that band hasn't made a decision yet. I'll get back to you when they do. But when our conversation was over, I said, there's one more thing that has nothing to do with business. Can I talk to you about it? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, the old man. And he goes, what about the old man? I told him what happened. Yeah. I put his name and the word yeah, genocide yeah. behind it and discovered all these things. He goes, let me look into it and call you back. I said, no pressure, yeah. all good, you know? So apparently he told me later that he went into Ahmed Erdogan's office, typed Ahmed Erdogan genocide on Ahmed Erdogan's oh, no. computer. Yeah. Yeah. And then listed all this stuff. Because Ahmed basically told Craig, how does he know all this stuff? <laughs> it's the days <laughs> of the internet, right? Like he's like, it's public, right? And so he did that and then he and then he called me and he said, Ahmed wants to speak to you. And I'm like, Oh, okay, cool. Let's talk. So he called me. He called. He calls me, and he's like, "Oh, you know, that was a long time ago when we started that chair. That writer is gone, and all that stuff." He even said, "I believe the Armenian genocide should be recognized. I have friends in, you know, Turkey. I'm friends with the prime minister. I have a house in Turkey. Yeah. All this stuff. Let's get together and talk. Why don't I fly you in?" And I, I thought about it, and I said, "Ahmed, I said, listen." I'd be happy to meet with you. I, I got no problems in talking to you about it. But I said, ultimately, my whole career has been based on telling my grandfather's story and the truth about the Armenian genocide. If I'm to work with someone that's, you know, 
spend money and help the denial of that genocide, it's going to make me look like a hypocrite. So if you want to work with me, I need a letter from you that says, I, Ahmed Erdogan, recognize the Armenian genocide. I promise not to publicize it unless I get, I turn into an asshole yeah, you wanted, somehow. Uh, you wanted your, uh, you wanted your, what do you call it? Uh, you wanted the, 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 the security deposit. Security deposit, right? He goes, I can't do that. And I said, well, why not? He said, because they'll burn my house in Turkey. And I said, then don't do it. I wouldn't want anything to happen to you or anyone else, like violence-wise and stuff. And, uh, and he goes, let me think about it. Maybe there's another way and, and nothing ever happened of it. Now, to my credit, I never told the band this story until after they made a decision. And they decided to go with Universal, not Atlantic at the time. So I didn't have a problem with that. With, and you didn't even have to tell him that. You didn't have to tell him, like, I got this personal problem. It's a genocide thing. <laughs> it's just a little genocide thing, right? No. Um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Like some of these situations that that I've kind of just been thrown in to kind that of deal with. Well, I mean, but that, but what a beautiful negotiation on some level that, you know, that by doing that, and not just, you know, it, it's a sign of maturity as an activist to not just act reactionary-like and say, you know, fuck you, fuck Atlantic Records, fuck you, right? No, because the people at Atlantic Records were great. Like, they, they were really, they're really a great label. But, but for him to, to, to meet you where you live and, and say, well, this is what's up, you know, I, I, I believe this now and, and at the time we did this. But yeah. then to ultimately say, I can't do that because of the threat to my livelihood right. to my like and i'm not willing to do that but that gave you an out it gave me an out but it's it's not so much the business thing i was worried about but it, it also shows what erdogan's turkey is e-r-t-o-g-a-n uh, uh recep yeah. tayyip erdogan the leader of turkey his yeah. his his turkey is very it's dictatorial it's completely dictatorial I and mean, he's got hundreds of thousands of people that he's put in jail since the coup you know been killing kurds left and right Right. Invading yeah. Syria, invading Libya, the Mediterranean, trying to drill in the Mediterranean next to Greece and Cyprus. Right. Uh, helping another dictator invade Artsakh with Azerbaijan mm. and bringing in Syrian mercenaries. They're using Syrian mercenaries as proxy armies everywhere now, you know, and I'm hoping I'm really hoping that Blinken and Biden put a stop to this once and for all. And it seems that like, you know, in terms of your solo career that, you know, outside of system, and once you sort of, I, I think, relaxed in your own skin around your activism and actually saw progress in terms of the message and in terms of, of, of raising awareness and doing the things that activists do and then ultimately you know, being invited on the eve of revolution uh, to Armenia to be there for, for that success. And, uh, and then you know, the prime minister said he sort of credited you right for inspiration he was there in the crowd like yeah when i met him when when i went to armenia he was there in the crowd watching system of a down with his wife and and you know he told me that he thought and, and we show it in the film that he said look if you can bring fifty thousand people out there we should be able to bring some people to the square and change this country for the for the better it gave him hope you know um but but honestly they you know that was an amazing work the the the, the whole revolution story of the revs oh we got a film coming out Another film I helped co-produce and score uh, called I Am Not Alone. It's an award-winning film, and it's a documentary about the 2018 Velvet Revolution in Armenia. We're going to put it out this year. And it kind of goes through the whole, it shows you how the revolution happened, like from day one and, you know, all the ups and downs, the whole storyline. It's really well done. Uh, same director who did Truth to Power, Garin Hovanisian, 
also direct the truth. Uh, I am not alone. And and you were talking about earlier about the the idea of the soft revolution. What was what? Do you, what? How did that? How did that tactically work? The decentralized civil disobedience. Dece- so, yeah, decentralized c- civil dis- disobedience. Yeah. So at first, you know, most revolutions that we know, like we see it in Belarus, Myanmar, elsewhere, they everyone gathers in a square, large numbers. The police are there. It's either violent or nonviolent, right? If if the police yeah. react, there might be violence, a lot of arrests, this that, and that happened in the beginning. And Armenians had, you know, we're very outspoken people, and so we've had a protest almost every year since independence because it's either an issue-based protest or whatever, different things, um, because people weren't happy. But they learned from these former protests that, look, if we all gather in a square, they're going to either arrest us, right, or mm. there's going to be violence, and we don't want either. Like, we don't want it to be a violent revolution. They, they stuck to their nonviolent, uh, um, you know, theories very strongly. So they, and, and everything they were trying failed like they were trying to galvanize people meet in a square not many people showed up do this do that and then they started gaining momentum as soon as they realized that people were watching the current prime minister who was the revolutionary leader Nikol Pashinyan on Facebook live and he's right. like shit okay so he ran and put himself in front of a bus I mean this is a member of parliament in Armenia Okay, he ran and put himself in front of a bus, a public bus in the middle of Central Square in the capital and refused to get up unless, the you know, told the bus to run over him if he really needs to go. Kids saw him do that and started blocking intersections all over the country, wherever they lived. So you don't have to go to the capital, to the Central Square. You want to protest? Go block your little street next to you. They started doing that. The whole country shut down. The whole country shut down. And then at that point they had the government's attention, okay? And then they were like, they took it a step further. They're like, okay, tomorrow, every bus, every truck driver in the country, wherever you are at noon, stop and honk. The loudest noise ever made in Armenia, likely, you know? Wow. Like the whole, you know? Just literally- but also not violent and not chaotic. Non-violent, non-chaotic, yeah. right? No no hurting people. If the police, they, they told them, if the police come to you, run. Don't get arrested. Don't fight. Run. But then come back and reclose the street because you've got them in numbers. They can't overwhelm you. The people are always more than the administration. Right. But, but, you know, you're you're sort of hoping for a non-fascistic response. Yes. And you are. And and luckily, we had so many protests and so many previous things that the government was also wary of strong crackdowns because they've done Mm. that before and it's bit them in the ass. Right. So they were careful. So but these people were also like the police are brothers and sisters. Let's not, you know, Uh, let's not harm them. They were they took the whole Gandhi approach, the the protesters. So uh, it was a very unique thing to watch. And. You know, as as someone who's an activist my whole life, seeing mm. something like this anywhere would be interesting, let alone Armenia, the small country of Armenia. And so they did it and it succeeded. At one point, the government officials were taking ambulances to go to their offices because they couldn't. The airport was closed. Everything was closed. <laughs> they couldn't get anywhere. They had them on their knees. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you watch the film so that you can learn the whole story. But I think there's a lot to learn from that example that can be replicated elsewhere in the world, whether it's Hong Kong, Belarus, Myanmar, anywhere, because there is a way by just using numbers in a peaceful manner to overwhelm the system. Now, obviously, it won't work everywhere. 
their their police might be extremely violent they might kill people you know obviously there's there's no magic formula but there is something unique in this that that could be very useful well and and and, and it worked it, it the, the people's it will was honored and uh you were invited back for the celebration I was invited back man i i landed at the airport i remember mark they as soon as we got out of the airport the streets were full of people elated not smiling, yeah. not happy, not rock and real where they're partying, but like yeah. beyond that. I've never seen elation in my life. That was a mm. unique experience. It was as if they were freed from indentured servitude of some type, you know? Uh, um, yeah. Which is a beautiful thing to see. Beautiful. I bet. And um, just to be a small part of it was was extremely exciting. And it gave me a decade of extra life, I'm sure. Um, and And just to see that change occur was was really touching really touching yeah when did uh, the united states finally acknowledge officially the genocide in armenia uh both houses of congress recognized it in december 2019 just two years ago yeah 104 years after it happened it happened yeah yeah i mean to to fairness to congress house of representatives has in the 1970s and 80s not senate but the house of representatives had recognized the genocide solely but but not both houses, so it never became law, really. Right. And President Reagan was the only president who's actually ever used the word genocide to to talk about what happened to Armenia, you know, uh, to Armenians. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite interesting. But now it's on the record. Now it's on the record in terms of Congress. So we're hoping, like I said, that President Biden takes that as you know as official policy and and you know again this would have no bearing on turkey in terms of it doesn't mean they can't do trade with turkey the u.s can't do trade or whatever it doesn't have teeth but turkey's still pissed off because they're still denying that their ancestors committed this atrocity you know that the whole world knows about you know european union european parliament france you know the whole world majority of the world and many countries have recognized the genocide and they are still hanging on to that that it didn't happen or it was a war. It happened during war. Everyone dies, that kind of a thing. They said the same thing about the Holocaust, didn't they, at first, you know? And the difference, Mark, is that there were no Nuremberg trials after the Armenian genocide. Right. You know what I mean? No one was held accountable. No one was put in place. There were tribunals, military tribunals by Turkey itself, who basically condemned the those that committed the atrocities in absentia. They had already fleed the country. To Germany, mostly Germany, Argentina, that kind, that kind of stuff. Just like, just like after the Holocaust. But are the names out there? Do people know who they are? Is it documented? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. A couple of them were taken out by assassins, um, and you know, and and they were, yeah, they had they had all fled. And but then what happened in Turkey, you know, after the war is different than what happened in Germany after World War Two. Turkey felt because because the uh, the powers that defeated Turkey, the West, basically, um, were were there. They were in Istanbul, and and now they have to deal deal with what what are the repercussions? What do we do now, right? And President Woodrow Wilson of the U.S. he had a plan um, that was based on justice rather than based on uh, geopolitical realities and needs of resource acquisition of the United States. Um, so he went to the treaty at the time and basically said we need to set up a league of nations which is the precursor of the united nations he basically said that a part of historical armenia which is in turkey should be given back to the armenians that the united states should act as 
guarantor of that land and make sure the security, that kind of thing, because these people were slaughtered. One and a half million Armenians died. That was 50% of our population at that time. But Congress shot him down because Congress said, everyone's interested in their oil. Why are you coming to us with this stuff? You know, because the Ottoman Empire covered Iraq, Iran, right? Uh, right. All parts of the Middle East, all oil, you know, Saudi Arabia, right? Lebanon, Syria, you know, so that was all Ottoman Empire. So everyone was more interested in oil than doing a Nuremberg trial type of situation after the genocide and after World War One. Yeah, it was a power grab and an oil grab going on. It was. It was. So that explains why that, that denial was allowed to exist for 100 years. Right. Right. Because everybody was trying to get their peace. Exactly. <laughs> now, the solo work, it seems like it, like your stuff, the way you kind of branched out and the way you kind of like were able to, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, you guys you know, have what you do together with the band, but it seemed like you had more orchestral and more, uh, you know, sort of you wanted to push the envelope in a different direction, you know, not the metal direction, but, you know, something more uh, artistic in a more purely artistic way. And it reminded me a little bit of uh, Zappa, you know, yeah. your, your personal I'm work. I'm a huge Zappa fan. You're like, you know, fuck it, man. <laughs> yeah, fuck it. Man. Yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> um, before his wife Gail died, I had the immense opportunity to go and with my camera guys, because uh, I always had the idea of making a film, but I didn't know yeah. what I was making a film about. I was just recording interesting experiences. But I had done a cover uh, of Yellow Snow for uh, Frank's birthday on iTunes years ago. Yeah. And they're like, oh, that's so cool. Gail wants to say thank you. If you ever need anything, I'm like, I would love to come by the studio <laughs> sometime. They're like, sure, come on. Did you record there? No, I didn't record there, no. You just took a sure. look around? Yeah, yeah, I took a look around. I had a camera guy with me, and, and we taped Felt the whole the thing, power. which was nice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Frank was very interesting in terms of, I mean, he he talked truth to power to everyone and everything, from hypocrisy to politics to, you know, that remember him on the Novak show and all the videos? Well, yeah, of, yeah, man. And, and that the Alex Winter's doc is pretty good, the new doc. Oh, I haven't Did seen you watch that. it on Frank. No, I haven't. It. It's okay, pretty I will. good. You know, and I'm, you know, it's like, you know, he did, you know, I didn't know what to think, uh, you know, and, but he did, he he did a really nice job. The interesting thing about Frank that you start to realize is, is that he was so, you know, kind of like possessed and inspired orchestrally, yeah. that it was almost as if like, you know, they, you know, rock and roll you know, forced him to speak his mind and to do this thing that he didn't necessarily really want to do right. just to get the freedom to do the thing that he really wanted to do. Yeah. yeah. So, like, he was like, fuck you, pay me for saying fuck you, and I'm going to go write this piece of music no one will understand. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Genius, genius. Yeah, he did have some amazing orchestra. I mean, he was... He, you know, even with the rock band, he had it more as an ensemble that he was directing, and then oh, he yeah. was also he was... a badass guitarist, right? Totally. Um, yeah, yeah, no, he did, like, it's just like, there's just mountains of work. I'm not a full Zappa head, but, but like, you know, as a person and as a musician, he's totally uh, impressive. And especially seeing, you know, if you watch the doc and see where it was all sort of came from, you know, because him and, him and Beefheart were out in Lancaster. Like, that's right. like shit town out there, you know, in the <laughs> desert, in the bad right. desert, you know. Yeah. But uh, but you worked with an orchestra, and I mean, how is, that must have been, like, do you feel like you've done everything you want to do creatively? Never. There's always some wall you haven't broken yet, right? Oh, yeah? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I've worked with 24 different orchestras. I've done a bunch of, uh, at least two dozen orchestral shows around the world. I've written a symphony, 
called uh, Orca. And mm -hmm. uh, I've done a jazz record called Jazz is Christ um, with a bunch of cool jazz head friends. Um, and I'm mostly doing film scores as far as new releases besides the EP. Um, I've, I'm doing a lot of film scores. Um, so I'm scoring a bunch of films, release them as soundtracks. And that's fun because each record is a different ask as far as the type of music. It's a different director, a different vibe, a different tone. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's that's Collaborative fun. and it's a different uh, set of, uh, of uh, it's a different type of creativity, you know. Correct, yeah. You're yeah, working, working to, to, to sort of um, complete someone else's vision. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. And I've met some cool director friends that keep on, you know, giving me more work, which is great. and. So I enjoy it. I enjoy doing that. But yeah, my solo work is definitely, I mean, there's the rock. Like I have a few rock records like Harakiri. Elasticity is mostly rock. Um, my first record. The first uh, one, yeah. Yeah, that was rock. Um, yeah. And uh, But then I also have orchestral stuff like Imperfect Harmonies and obviously Orca, my symphony. And, you know, just, just new boundaries, new, new fun stuff to try to do. And yeah. how, how are you and the fellows from System getting along? Really well, really well. I mean, we got together uh, last year for, we did two songs. When the war started um, in, in, in Artsakh in Armenia, we realized the need for, uh, we realized that there's a false parody in the press. Like even BBC and Al Jazeera were not reporting mm. it correctly because no one was sending anyone to go under those bombs at, at first, you know, and to report the truth. They later went, uh, BBC specifically went. And, um, but at first there was this, it took them a week or two and they were just saying, oh, both sides blame each other for the attacks and bullshit. Like there's, it's not both sides blaming, you know, one side attacked, right? It's not. Right. Um, so, you know, and, and, uh, so we, we wanted to make it clear that there was this information, misinformation out there and that we wanted to show the truth. So we put out two songs. One is called Protect the Land, the other Genocidal Humanoids. We made videos for them and we released them. And it was really, uh, it really felt amazing because, and, and we donated the proceeds to the Armenia Fund, which is a nonprofit in Armenia, dealing with humanitarian aid, et cetera, rehabilitation of soldiers. Um, and uh, we, we, it, it felt really good to do something above and beyond ourselves. And that made us get together creatively to kind of just, and it wasn't important whether, you know, this song is perfectly in this thing or this will sound better. It was more like, yeah. dude, you have a song for this? Great. Let's fucking record it. Let's put it out next week. Like, let's, you know, is the, will the label, uh, what do we do? Do we have to call the label? Yeah, technically we do, you know, like, well, tell them we're releasing it with or without them because this is for our people. Fuck that, you know? So it was one of those where just like, boom, you know, the inertia was so strong that we and just- had it land? It landed really well. It landed really well. It broke, number one, it broke through some of the disinformation, which we actually have reports from, you know, seeing mm. that kind of stuff. Um, and people responded really well. And, and Armenians in Armenia were really enthused because they didn't feel like they were alone, you know, like they felt yes. like people cared, you know. That's a huge thing. You know, we raised some funds. We raised like 700 grand that we were able to donate. Um, nice. So, so I think I think that was an incredible effort. And I'm really proud of System of a Down, my, my brothers in System of a Down, that we were able to galvanize and do that. Well, good man. That's great. You seem great, and uh, and great work. You, you've you've Thanks, you've led a, a life of integrity, and you've made changes. I try, buddy. <laughs> Just right, like buddy. you, I try. I try. Yeah, it's good talking to you, man. Thank you for an incredible interview and and an incredible talk. I look forward to seeing you one day. Yeah, thank you for educating me. All right, brother. Thank you.
Now I know. Now I understand more about Armenia, about my neighbors, about the struggle, about a struggle, about what struggle is, about what activism is. Are we doing enough? Are you doing enough? Am I doing enough? The documentary about Surge is uh, called Truth to Power. It's available on demand and in virtual cinemas. Play some dirgy guitar. Fonda. I can see the cat angels flying over the mountains. Here they come. 